I don't know about you, but I don't want another NFT marketplace. I don't want another shit project like NFT, POAP this and POAP that and whatever this and whatever that. I want projects that are pushing the limits and solving real world use cases because why would anyone go from ETH to NIR or another chain to NIR if there's just like the same kind of projects? What is inspiring change? That was Ben Couric, co-parent at Keypalm. This is one of those podcasts that I am really proud to produce because it is a perfect balance between an open, raw conversation that I really feel like we need to have in the ecosystem right now. We're able to talk about things such as some of the challenges, some of the different point of views, but what I like the most is that Ben brings a clarity of purpose and a focus on mission that is very inspiring and I think that we're going to all learn a lot from. We go all the way back to how he got into the near protocol, not having any idea about blockchain or Rust, all the way to how he's building a protocol that is pushing the boundaries of what is possible on near. Along the way, we do get personal and deep, but as I said, rather than just the community whining, Ben embodies the builder ethos that I am confident is what is going to lead us to success. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ben Carrick. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, it is an absolute pleasure to have with me Ben Carrick, previous DevRel engineer at Pagoda, current software engineer at Pagoda, father of a Pomenarian, also known as Keypoma, and current student at the University of Waterloo Engineering. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is going to be an awesome next couple of hours. I'm pretty excited. We're going to talk about a lot of things and why don't we just get started? I am very impressed by how much work and achievements you've been able to jam into such a short lifespan. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's really, honestly, I think I'm going to have to credit most of it to COVID because there was nothing else I could have done in those two years, just sitting at home, working away. I did most of my networking and work in those, in those two years, which, you know, so I, I tried to make something good out of COVID. It was definitely not fun, though, I must say, being stuck indoors, coding all day and working all day. And so I'm very happy. I don't know about you, but right now, I'm looking outside and it's it's 25 degrees Celsius. I, for those years viewers, I don't I don't speak in Fahrenheit. I'm based here in in Canada, so we do Celsius, but it's a beautiful day today, and I went out for a nice walk, and so very happy to be outside. Very happy that summer's coming, and looking forward to the next couple of months for sure. We did push the podcast forward half an hour just so that Ben can get that extra little bit of sun. I can only imagine what the winter would have been like. Are you in Vancouver? No, I'm in, I'm on the, the East Coast. So I'm in Toronto. Matt, the other co-founder of Keepom, he's based in, in Vancouver. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to Vancouver, would have been back in 2013, maybe. It was for a university conference. And I must say, it is a lot like Melbourne, but smaller. Wait, so where are you based right now then? So I technically Melbourne. Uh, that's my okay. legal residence still. I've been traveling for seven months. And right now I'm in Auckland for the foreseeable future. Cool. Right on. Yeah, I've actually never been to Vancouver. I'm going for the first time this summer. I'm going to do a little trip to Seattle and then drive up to, uh, to Vancouver. So that's going to be fun. I'd like to get your insight because I've been told that 
different Canadian cities can actually be very different. I'm not going to lie. I thought Vancouver was boring as shit. And I was told, yeah, go to Toronto, go to Montreal. That's where the fun is happening. And even between those two, completely one is French yeah. speaking, the other one is whatever it is. Well, Montreal is awesome. I must say it's more of a university town, but yeah, it's amazing. Some of the clubs there, some of the food. Ooh, that Montreal smoked meat just hits different. But that's my people. See, I identify as a much younger person, which is hilarious because when I'm actually with young people, I realize now nah, I'm old as shit. I just want to go into the sleep. But this brings us back to where we wanted to start loosely. We saw each other last at East Denver. We shared an Uber, which I really appreciate because I honestly spent more money on Ubers than on flights. Yeah, almost. that was crazy. The Ubers in Denver, I've been to dozens of conferences now and I've never had an expense on Ubers that much. It was crazy, man. After the conference ended, the prices dropped like 80%. It was crazy. I just remember that guy that picked us up from one of the after parties, the opening party, the near one. He had a smile as big as his face. And yeah. he was like, thanks so much, guys. Like, you've made my week just with this trip. And I'm like, holy shit, how much are we paying for this? But what I wanted to ask was, how many stages were you on? What was the reception like? for that crowd yeah what was your experience at East Denver sure yeah East Denver was crazy there were so many people it was last year I must say I it's weird because last year there was a lot of people but they were crammed into a tighter area in Denver and so this year was a lot more open so it balanced out I'm pretty sure there was a lot more people this year but it was a bigger space so it didn't feel as if it was that much crazier but with that being said I got lost a couple of times in the venue trying to find the main stage. Matt and I were pretty much, we were late for, I probably, we were about three, four minutes away from being late to our main stage talk because we had no idea where the main stage was. We were frantically trying to find where to go. But, but yeah, it was an awesome venue this year. It was fun. Follow the rainbow. Just yeah. follow the rainbow. It's not that hard. <laughs> I know. You would think that, that software engineers like Matt and I would be able to figure our way down to the main stage, but... But anyways, yeah, it was an awesome venue, I must say. There was a ton of amazing people. I met a crazy amount of awesome people from the Near ecosystem and from ETH and from other chains, made some great connections. In terms of the stages and the talks, we had one on the main stage for Near Day. That was a lot of fun. We had a keynote for about, I think it was like 20 minutes, if I remember correctly. That was a great talk. And then we did a pitch competition for five minutes. And then we had another talk for ETH Denver on one of the stages. So there were, there was three, five, there might've been another one, but I don't remember. I think there was only three though. So it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of Matt and I rehearsing and getting our skit down pat, but, but yeah, it was a great venue. I had a lot of fun. So a lot of people may be wondering, how did you make your way from the East coast of Canada, still at university, all the way to sharing a stage with legendary Matt Lockyer at legendary East Denver? Ben, why don't you tell us your story into, into sure, the wonderful yeah. world of crypto? I'll, I've told this story many times, but it never gets old, even though it's boring. Uh, give us something um, unique. Make some shit up if you have it, to. <laughs> yeah, I was working in the carpentry industry for a couple of, no, I'm kidding. So yeah, I was in school and this was right at the start of COVID. And I'm, I have a pretty good relationship with, with one of the high up professors at the university and we were chatting and he was saying, this was right around the time of the boom of NFTs and crypto and all that kind of stuff. This was like the start of, of COVID. Everything was blowing up. There were billions of dollars floating around. And I was talking to this professor 
And we were seeing the NFTs. And I, at the time, I didn't know what the heck a blockchain was. I didn't, the first time he said, hey, there's this thing on the blockchain, I, I pulled out my phone and I looked up on, on Wikipedia, what is a blockchain? I, I had no idea what that was. But yeah, so we were talking and he was saying, there's all this money in the NFT space, but unfortunately, nonprofits and impact organizations are behind on the technology. And it's not as easy for them to incorporate. And it's not as easy for them to get in to the space and potentially make some money because you have all this money flying around. And most of it is just like degen stuff. People are just throwing money at everything. And we were chatting and I, was like, and I was like, oh my God, this is, you're totally right. Like, how can we take some of this money and some of this liquidity and put it into the hands of maybe some impact organizations? Let's flip the flippers and try to make some changes and try to impact the world a little bit. And that was the inception of the very first idea that we came up with. And we, we were like, okay, let's make an NFT platform. Let's make an NFT marketplace. And this was before there were hundreds and hundreds of NFT marketplaces. Now you see a new NFT marketplace pop up every other day. This is way in the beginning. And we were saying to ourselves, let's make an NFT marketplace where every single piece of art is up for sale in support of a different sort of social impact organization. So you could have an artist that was struggling with mental health or addiction or something, and they would draw this beautiful piece of artwork and make this digital art and put it up for sale for an organization that they feel passionate about. So it's like a trifecta of connecting artists with impact organizations, all while connecting that to an end user or a buyer. And there's also this informational aspect to it where the buyer is learning about the different causes and familiarizing themselves with the artists and the charities and just generally learning about different causes. And so I, we, we developed that out and we were looking for a chain to build on at the time. And this was before Nier's mainnet launch. And we looked at pretty much every chain out there. And finally, hilariously enough, we stumbled across a little article made by Paras about how to create an NFT marketplace. I would love to find this article. This was way back. I think at the time we were building on NEP-4. I think it was like the fourth ever NEP or maybe the fifth or something. It was, the, it was such an early stage of the NFT standard at the time. What are we up to now? NEP we're, we're on, oh my God, we're, I think we're on like 460 or something like that. Maybe we've even breached the 500s. I don't know. I think that the new link drop standard that I'm putting together is 452. If I remember correctly. So we're way up there. But yes, this was a long time ago. And we were following this tutorial. We were learning about how to actually create the marketplace. And we were learning more about Nier. And it really aligned with our vision because imagine a world where you're supporting a climate organization, you're planting trees, you're doing rehabilitation for, I don't know, XYZ. And you're working on a blockchain that is extremely energy inefficient. That is not a great look. Near being carbon neutral, being sharded, being proof of stake, that was all the buzzwords that really aligned with, with my co-founder and I. And we found Near, we found this article, we started building, and then we got stuck. And we we're like, we don't know what we're doing. I'd never written a smart contract before. I'd never even, I didn't even know Rust was a language. I was like, I don't know what the heck's going on. And so we reached out, we joined the Near Discord and I got a bot message from like the official Near bot saying, hey, I hope your journey's going well. If you need any help, just ping one of the team members. And so I just drafted up a, a small message and I cold emailed like the top 20 people that were online from the dev team. Out of everyone that I sent it to, only one replied and that was Mike Purvis. I love Mike with all my heart. He, he'll forever have a special place right here. 
absolute legend. I would never endorse or abate criminal activity, except kidnapping Mike Purvis and I chaining him agree. to a desk with only near related applications so he can keep contributing. He's a real OG and he's still around. I, I yeah, really Mike, appreciate uh, Mike, I love Mike with all my heart. But yeah, so he actually responded and I was asking, hey, you know, we, we've created this NFT contract, like how do I make a marketplace? And at the time there was no NFT marketplace contracts out there. And let me just correct myself. The press one was like how to create an NFT contract. There was not actually kind of like marketplaces out there. And so I talked to Mike and he scheduled a call and he scheduled a call with Matt Lockyer. So it was myself, Matt Lockyer, Mike, and my co-founder. And so we were chatting. Oh, the stars are aligning. I can see the, yeah, the, this the is, tutelage this is, in here. This is really how it all started. And at the time, Matt was building out the infamous NFT-market repository that is now being used by, you know, it was the backbone of every NFT marketplace on there, pretty much. And so he was working on that. This was when he was on DevRel, I think. But I, I was like, okay, great. Like you're building a marketplace. This is exactly what we need. I started to delve into the code. And lo and behold, I found a bunch of bugs because Matt doesn't check his work over twice. Just kidding, Matt, I love you. And I found a bunch of bugs. And so I, I'd reach out to him and he'd be like, oh my God, yeah, you're totally right. This is wrong. This whatever. He's like, you have a really cool eye for catching bugs and smart contracts. Would you want to potentially work for Nier? And at the time, I'm a student. I still am a student, but I don't have the ability to just drop everything and go full time. And so I said, I got to think about it. To really reach legendary status, you have to drop out. We know how this ends. I'm sorry, Ben, but... I've been... How many times people have tried to convince me to drop out? My mom would disown me and so would my grandparents. So I can't... The world uh, needs you. I can stay on the sidelines working part-time. It's cool, whatever. You just show up for a couple hours, do the work. And then behind the scenes, you're working on the key pump protocol. But anyway, yeah, I was, I was contemplating what I should do. And so then I eventually, I came back to Matt and I was like, look, I would do it. But the only stipulation is it would have to be an internship. And he's like, oh interesting. We've never hired an intern before. This is weird. And so then he eventually gave me a shot. And so I started in whatever, two, three months. And all the while I was building and whatever. And then when I got there, Matt left. <laughs> Matt went and co-founded Satori. So he brought me on. He then left right at the time where I was starting. And he dropped me with this young fellow named Joshua Ford. Joshua Ford, I owe so much too. So he was my manager on DevRel and go ahead. Is there a separate Josh that looks after funding? There's Josh Daniels. Yeah. Oh, Josh okay. Daniels does funding. Josh Ford is the head of DevRel. Thanks for clarifying that. Cause I was like, do you literally owe him? Did you like borrow some funds there? No, I, I don't have that. I don't have that rich of a relationship with Josh Daniels, but Josh Ford, I, he's a really good friend of mine. He's taught me so much stuff. It's kind of like a mentor, almost like Matt. But anyway, so I got into the, I got into DevRel and I started doing work. It was an internship. It was great. And that's when I created the NFT Zero to Hero tutorial, because at the time I was working on uh, my company for NFTs and the marketplaces. So I knew the standards inside out and backwards, and there wasn't really any sub subject matter expert because all the NFT people went to Satori. And so at that point, I created this tutorial, started doing work and so on and so forth. And then I started to go to conferences. I started to do talks. I started to, through Pagoda, formerly Near Inc. And then one day, Matt and I started Keep On. 
And all the while I'm talking to Matt, like all the time, Matt, I've got like tens of thousands of messages with this guy. It's crazy. But anyway, we were banging on an idea for link drops. And the idea was how do we create a link drop that has an NFT in it? Because right now all the link drops are just raw near. And that idea actually stemmed from work that I was doing at Pagoda because Josh Ford had asked, hey, you know, we got some partners that want to do NFT link drops. Is this possible? And I was like, oh, it is, but there's nothing like that. Let's, let's pair on this. And so I was talking to Matt and then we implemented it. And then we're like, hold up, this can go one step further. In this context, how would you define link drop or what would have been like the specs requirement for what the clients may have wanted or what their original vision was like? Yeah, the original vision at this point was click a link get some near and get an NFT at that point. That was it. That was the entire scope was just how do I drop someone an NFT if they have a wallet or not? That was it. That was the entire thing. And at the time, Matt and I were trying to, we were trying to come up with names for Keypom and it started off as Drop Zone. And that's actually the, the Twitter April Fool's thing that we did a while ago was Drop Zone. And then we were thinking maybe drop shit, <laughs> like you drop someone some shit. <laughs> But we ended up, Matt called me one day and he was like, yeah, man, I was walking with my wife and, and she, and there was this like fluffy dog walking around and I turned to my wife and I'm like, what is that thing? And she's like, it's a Pomeranian. And then he's like, whoa, Pom, like a Pom ski. Oh no. She, so it was a mix between a Pomeranian and a something ski. I don't remember. Shitsu? I don't think it was like a, a Pom shoot. <laughs> no, it's Pom shit. No, but it was like a, some Pomeranian and a Husky. That's what it was. It was a mix between, I think, a Pomeranian and a Husky. So he goes and he's, oh, it's like a Pomsky. And then he's like, oh my God, like a Palm Key, right? And then his wife is like, that sounds so dumb. And then they flipped it and it was like a Key Palm. And he called me, he's oh my God, like I got this sick idea. He's, you know how there's Cron Cat where it's like something and then the animal? Why don't we do Key Palm? And I was like, yo, that's awesome. And then he hired some artists to make like the original cute logo, which was what we all now know and love, the Keypom mascot. So that's how Keypom came to be. I am deeply disturbed at the image of a husky getting bred with a pomenarian. I th okay, I think that's what it was, but yeah, you're right. Palms are small and huskies are big. I think it was, I don't know. I got to double check with Matt. Because it was something palm ski. I, I don't know what the ski is. I'm thinking it's a husky. I don't know. I might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But I agree. That's a little bit of a weird sight. So well, don't quote me on that. But moving past that, I had a husky as a child. So it's like PTSD. But I love the, the origin story. Have you told this story before about the naming no, of Key Palm? Actually, no one knows about the naming of Key Palm. I, that's public. I've told the story about Fair and my company and DevRel and Matt leaving and stuff, but no one knows, I think, the origin of the name. Thank you. I don't request it explicitly, but when I honor people and coming on the pod, I expect some alpha. Yeah, that, that's the alpha, the insider scoop. Now, there's so many things that I like. Let's focus on the branding and culture for a minute. Sure. There's an interesting shift between the original company called FAIR. It's a charity. You help artists. There's a fairness element to it. It's easy to see where it comes. But as a lot of startups do these days, you've got the word that maybe phonetically you can recognize, FAIR, spelt in a way that no one can really pronounce or it's harder to pick. Can yeah. you spell it for me? It's F-A-Y-R. It was a plant. So the, actually the origin, I'll give you some more alpha. So when I was starting a fair, 
we were thinking of names for the company. And for the longest time, actually, in our articles of incorporation, actually stated that our name was Nifty Labs. N-I-F-T-I Labs, like NFT. It's like a nifty kind of, it's a cool experience. And then we found out that there was Nifty Gateway. And we were like, that's not good. So we had to switch. And the way that we found the name is we were looking for free domain names, five to six letter words. And we, we blasted through all of them. There were so many stupid ones. But then there was one F-A-I-Y-R. And we were like, oh, fair. That's cool. But the problem is that people pronounce it like fire. And that was a real problem, I must say. But yeah, so there's definitely, I, I do appreciate that Keypom is a little more bulletproof in that the naming can't really be mispronounced. I don't know how you would even mispronounce that. But, uh, but yeah, so it's definitely a little bit better. Not a dig on founders, which is all there is early days when you come up with a name. But some could definitely use with a bit more originality or eventually they'll get a very expensive, whatever, creative agency to sure. rebrand. But I'm just curious, how much of that is memetics? We just copy what everyone else is doing, misspell the word to get a domain. We all get, first it was a .io, now it is a .xyz. How much of that is memetics? I think a good amount of it is. Like originally, I did not like keypom.xyz. I didn't want it. I really wanted keypom.com because it sounds, it sounded to me like keypom.com versus keypom.xyz. It flows off the tongue a little bit better. I don't know. It's something that Mark and Dreesen, or like someone that works at Oracle, would see, understand, and respect. I see that you're an old man inside. That's good. That also explains a lot of things. But yeah, man, I think, honestly, I think there's a lot of mnemonics to it because it's kind of like a jingle. It's kind of like having a good jingle, right? 967 11, 11 call pizza. I don't know if you know that reference. It's pizza, pizza. It's, uh, yeah, hopefully. Okay. Wow. That's really embarrassing on my part. But it's well, a jingle I'll find for, it, for a And I'll yeah, make a TikTok it, short with a song over on top. Okay, good. Okay. Because it, it's the jingle for a pizza parlor. It's huge in the States and in Canada and whatever. But I, mean, I don't know how it is on the Far East Coast. But, but yeah. So, I think mnemonics is good if you do it well, because it's something catchy. It's something like, you know, that you remember. It's something that flows off the tongue, right? Something you want to say, something you want to promote. What I'm wondering, and I think this is where Matt has always stood out. And to this day, I'm very proud of all the podcasts that go out and I don't publish all of them. But to this day, Matt's interview, podcast number 13, well over a year ago. It's probably one of my favorites. He is not normal. He is outstanding on many measures from the technical to the cultural. And I'm really curious, like, where is the intersection between memetics? That's fine. You can't go wrong. We look at what's worked, but also where do you inject originality and how much tolerance for like, let's call it risky behavior or experimentation do you have in? Keep them at first. I'm not going to lie. I didn't get it. I thought it was more of a marketing ploy than a product. Yeah. A lot over of people time, did. Oh yeah, over time I got it. But I like that even though now it is shaping to be the product on Nier and probably the biggest catalyst for growth, I would even say I would personally place it over the blockchain operating system. Maybe it's just something that I would personally use more. But even to this day, the key logo or the motto on Twitter is MOGA, 
make onboarding great again. That's just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, that that I owe to Matt. <laughs> so many people would stay away from a four-word acronym that mildly resembles or sounds like MAGA. Yeah. And Matt is no. Let's tap into this cultural trend. We'll know that 50% will love it, 50% will be triggered, a hundred percent will remember it. Exactly. I love That's it. It, that's definitely the marketing strategy that Matt has rubbed off on me over, over the years. Matt, I must say, is a genius when it comes to, I mean, you, when it comes to like marketing and engagement and user experience, like that's what Matt really excels at is the user experience and making a splash. And I think he actually has a background in rich user experience. And, but anyway, so yeah, like it, that's definitely something that, that he's rubbed off on me and it's, that's why we we impersonate a dog, right, on Twitter. Like, we act as if we're a dog. We have, like, kind of weird catchphrases that are pushing the boundaries. And that's why we had a very anime-looking, cutesy dog logo. And that's why when we first started, you should have seen my Twitter. When no one knew that it was Matt and I's project, we would just create this Twitter account, and we blasted the logo on every single tweet we replied to every single tweet we saw. There was hundreds and hundreds of these dogs. And everyone was like, what the hell is this? What is going on? We don't know what this is. We don't know who's behind it. Is it a shit coin? Is it like a new prod who, who's running it? Is this the near foundation? What is going on? And it got people talking. It got people tweeting. What is this dog? Who is this? And then we finally came out and we went to NearCon wearing around our neck the big plushie. We tried to be very out there. We tried to make an impact, but also not going too far is very important. You don't want to piss people off. You don't want to, you kind of want to ride the wave and make a splash while also promoting what you're doing. So yeah, that's something that Matt has really excelled at. And at the start, I was like, this is weird. Coming from this marketplace that was very kind of museum-esque, marble, white marble, and all about artwork and beauty and impact and stuff. Going from that to this kind of like, anime dog was a little bit weird for me. But eventually, after talking with Matt and discussing things, I was like, you're a genius. There's two things there. The first one is, to me, that's the embodiment of a founder mindset. You understand it, you own it, you feel comfortable in saying, this is my domain. I'll prove you the value of my product. I don't have any issues or any hesitations or any doubt. And this is the brand or the playfulness. As you say, there has to be a balance. Understand yeah. that everything that you do is at top of the funnel. Raise awareness, drive engagement, get supporters, get followers. Look, the truth is, keep them just launched and hasn't even fully launched. And no, there's already no, there's an army. stuff in the works. <laughs> yeah, there's an army of pomenarians already. We've got a community organized hackathon. We've got a bunch of people that anything that they see, they automatically share. That's community. And yeah. I think that's really admirable. Now, the second thing, which may seem counter to it, is I am really enjoying your path because a lot of people that get into crypto tend to have a personal experience in their life that highlights a problem in the world that then crypto gives them that hope or that vision. They tend to be working towards a North Star. This is like the 43rd episode and... There's been people from all over the world working on all sorts of projects and all sorts of curvy paths, but they all tend to have that North Star. I really like your journey because I hope that it is inspiring to the vast majority of people that we want to onboard to crypto, especially as contributors, in the sense that 
you join in a professional capacity. You didn't have to go through a hero journey or some childhood traumatic experience. You didn't have to be a genius. It was literally a conversation with someone. Here's a problem that we want to solve. And then just like anybody else would today, join the Discord, read the docs, link with people that can help. It's exactly, it's any community member can go along the same path. Join, get involved, make opportunities. Don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to ask for help. If I never asked for help, I would not be sitting here today with you in this podcast. Don't be afraid to make mistakes and ask for help and get shit done. I choke with Matt all the time. This, we wanted to make shirts for consensus, probably for Nearcon Alpha, get shit done or ship shit, keep on ship shit. Just work and ask questions and get messy and opportunities will come. That's it's anyone can follow this path. hundred percent. If you want my humble feedback, get shit done is better. Get, yeah. But get, I'm happy to A-B test it and get I'll, shit I'll, done. I'll, I think ship, it's, I'll ship you some shirts. But I'll tell you why I like, I mean, I've always liked alliterations. So ship shit, there's certainly value there. But what I like the most about get shit done is that it reinforces that alignment with the startup community, with the product people. Dude, go to indiehackers.com. Spend an hour reading people's experiences and challenges and questions and feedback of people building product. Then go to any crypto ecosystem chat or community. Most people are fucking clueless. We're not building product. We're building protocols or yeah. we're building Ponzi's. Product is something else. And anything that gets Web3 closer to product, I think needs to be elevated. And honestly, I think Keepom is going to be the railways to enable these products, but it is itself a product, or at least maybe that's why I find the most puzzling and fascinating. It is a protocol that it is being developed as a product. So yeah. it's got the best chance. I mean, at, at the end of the day, that like all we want to do is provide the means and the infrastructure to allow for products to come and create experiences that normally would not be allowed or not be possible. That's at the end of the day, that's what we do. We're the enabler of, of crypto experiences. It's a great line. It's a great line. Now, Ben, before we jump into the technical, because I've heard you talk before, and I know this will get pretty wild pretty soon. Let's get some spicy stuff out of the way. All right. You don't have to comment if you don't want to. All right. I'll, I'll always remember when I asked Shevchenko to join the podcast at ETH Denver. He said, sure. But if at any point I feel uncomfortable, I'm just getting up and leaving. Sure. All right. Look, let's, now this I'm curious. This pod has a reputation for going deep, going personal, no holds barred. Just you and I. No one else is listening. Okay. What happened to Satori? Uh-huh. Now that's an interesting question because I don't know if I can answer that. We could probably frame it differently because I know that it's a different era and different players that don't concern you. What's the tech, how is the tech stack different or how has the keep them approach been different? Because there are products that I really liked. By the way, I was Satori's number one user. I was on the ground at ETH Soul with a laptop, onboarding dozens of people every day using Satori products. I was giving them heaps of feedback like, to me, that is the product. Yeah. Regardless of which product specifically, the user experience was there. And then there were some technical issues. They started pivoting. But by DEFCON Bogota, 
I tried using the drop link, didn't work. Other people there tried using it as well to one where people didn't work. And soon after that, I, th I think they've just pivoted fully in a different direction. Yeah. So I'm wondering what are the differences technically or how is Keepum different and how can we ensure that this onboarding experience actually sees the day of light? Sure. So at the end of the day, Satori was a little bit centralized in that it had APIs, it had backends, it had services like that. At least this is all things that I'm, I've heard. I haven't actually, for full transparency, looked into the tech stack of Satori. But the other problem is that they didn't have very good Sybil resistance. So what I think actually broke the camel's back was they had, at the end of the day, they, Satori does or did what one of the many use cases that Keepom allows for. And that is, how do I drop someone in NFT regardless of whether or not they have a wallet? That's at the end of the day, what they strived to do. And the problem is that they had backends, they had APIs, they had not great Sybil resistance. Their contracts weren't written in a way that were super resilient. For example, the contract was being drained and they kept just putting near into it and it just kept getting drained and they kept putting near and they kept putting and it just it was like a vicious cycle because behind the scenes what had happened was someone had created a ton of access keys and those access keys all had claim to near and whenever the contract just put near in they would just take the near out and take the near out and so satori was just like giving near to these people and there was apis there was backends it wasn't really easy to integrate satori into your own front ends and into your own experiences, you had to go through the Satori way. And so Keepom was built from the ground up. Literally, we wrote the contract from scratch. And the motto and the vision that we had learned from those experiences from the start. And that was, we do not want to have one app, the Keepom app, where everybody has to go through. You want a drop? Go through Keepom. We did not want that. That was never the vision. It will never, ever be the vision. The vision from the start has always been, we want to be a protocol that you can tap into and you can use in your own applications. Shard Dog, Stack Sports, Pagoda, Theo and Far. We don't care how you use the protocol. We just allow you to do that in a seamless manner. And with that comes the SDKs and the docs and all that kind of stuff to abstract away as many complexities as possible to make that integration seamless. We wanted to create a Web2 kind of plug and play. If you know how to code in Web2, you will be able to use the protocol. That's the experience that we wanted. There is no mention of near API JS or like this or that or whatever. If you know how to code simple JavaScript, you can use the protocol. That was the mantra. You can charge your own custom fees if you want on your app. You can brand it the, however you want. You can say powered by Keepom. You don't have to say that. I don't care. Do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, we wanted to allow for those use cases without having to go through our own app, if that makes sense. And just to make sure that I get the right parallels here, when you mention APIs, backends, that Satori had two questions. The first one is how much of that may have been a product of the time. I know that we're going through a similar cycle with AstroDAO now. I had a bunch of middleware 
And there is a push now to have AstroDAO or its equivalent, it's a Sputnik smart contract on the back end, to have that re-bundled or reimagined through the blockchain operating system. So have everything be directly on chain and whatever that means. Honestly, if I'm going to answer this truthfully, I'm not the best person to ask this. I've never been super well informed of the tech stack and the exact ways that Satori did their business. But from my understanding, you would call some API and it would create the drop and do the things behind the scenes for you. But now you're going through their own centralized servers. And what happens if those servers go down? You can't create drops and you can't claim drops and all that kind of stuff. That is my understanding. Now, please don't quote me on that because I'm not well versed on this topic. But, but yeah. I really appreciate the honesty. And th the reason why I ask is because I had a fantastic conversation with Jeff Bissinger. I actually want to have him on the podcast again because I did some user testing for them in January and they're doing a whole bunch of different stuff now that I find interesting. But what was clear to me with the conversation from Jeff, which sadly, tragically got lost, I moved my chair and I disconnected the... Oh no. Yeah, that was so shit. But what was clear to me is he comes from Facebook. He's got a very deep understanding of product and user experience, and they were definitely in the right direction. So the question that I always ask is, was the idea or the hypothesis not the right one? Or was no, the there, there was a fallout in there was a fallout in the founders and the team broke up and shit hit the fan. That's all I can say, just because it's not my story to tell. But yeah, fair enough, because now you're adding a third variable. Was the idea for the product or protocol or feature or the hypothesis just tested? It was good. It was great. No, I think the hypothesis, if you think about it, their hypothesis was exactly how we started, right? We started with the same hypothesis, create an NFT drop. But the problem when I reached out to Matt and we were like pairing on things, with Satori was the way that they actually implemented. And when Matt and I implemented the first iteration of Keypom or at the time Drop Zone, and we did these NFT drops, we did it right. It, we did it in a way that can't be gamed, it can't be Sybil attacked. We did it completely on chain with no APIs or anything like that. Everything was on chain, everything was non custodial. It was a custom implementation that can't be gamed, can't be Sybil attacked or anything like that. And I just think that Satori might have gone about it in the wrong way. And then the way that we wrote the contract was easily extensible so that we could have added more types of drops. And that's when we started with the fungible token drops. And then we moved to function call drops and all this kind of stuff. And then it just snowballed. And a couple months later, we built something that we don't even recognize. What the hell am I looking at? We will dive into that beast of a doggy, the Franken doggy. The Franken, Franken palm. The only reason why I bring this up, not to stir shit, despite what some people think, I don't like the drama. It's just that I find that you can learn more from failures than even from success stories. So if anyone is looking at building products today on the earth, let it be known that there are ways of going about it that may have some benefits or detriments. And I'm sure that we're going to touch on some of that. Yeah. Ben, I've expressed this view over many podcasts and I okay. don't know if I'm correct. But before I tell you what it is, I'll ask you a question first. I don't want right. to preempt you. Could Keepum have been built by anyone other than two former DevRels at Pagoda or even current employees at Proximity and Pagoda? And I'm not For talking sure. about just the knowledge, but 
Yeah, 100%. Can be built by anyone, right? The problem is that you need a very deep understanding of the underlying technology that Nier runs on. You need to be very well versed to be able to understand all of the flows and the mechanics. Like, this is an extremely advanced protocol that it pushes Nier's tech to the limits and really pushes the boundaries. But yeah, anyone could have built it for sure. But that is my key observation. Most of the things that I see today, at least some of the early things like Ref, Borrow Cash, things that are pushing the boundaries now, Nier Social, Key Palm, I see an early core or people that are very deep into the protocol. So I guess my question to you would be, are we doing a good enough job with the documentation and with advertising or promoting or amplifying what you can build on Nier? No. I know that technically somebody could have built Keepum in the same way that I asked the same thing, Shevchenko. Technically, someone could have built a cross-contract call between Aurora and Nier. But in reality, does the world know that it's possible and without a, a full-time person working inside the protocol, would it have happened? That's a great question. No, I don't think so. I think the unfortunate reality, and I'm not throwing shade on anyone here, and I used to write, I, I wrote a lot of the docs. The unfortunate reality is there's a switch happening right now. And that switch is away from the developer relations kind of role and more towards boss. There's not, we're not pushing out any documentation we're not pushing out any kind of like developer relations. We're not supporting developers because there's a switch over from the traditional DevRel to let's do boss. For some context, Pagoda used to own the developer relations. They still do. It's still in a little bit of a gray area. I believe in transparency, so I'm just going to talk about this. And I'm sure it's supposed to be transparent, but maybe people don't know this. But Pagoda used to own DevRel. Pagoda, the day-to-day -day used to be Let's host office hours every single day, one in EU and one in the Americas. Let's answer questions on Discord. Let's answer questions on Stack Overflow. Let's make sure that the developers are being adequately supported. Let's create examples that push the limits and let's put them in documentation. Number one, let's create examples. Let's ship them. Let's try to promote a world where you can figure out that there's possibilities like Keypom. And we were just getting started on that. I think it was going great. All right, we had refactored our documentation. We were shipping advanced tutorials. We were talking about, I was in the middle of, of doing a zero to hero on cross-contract calls. But then all of a sudden we had a reorg and we completely switched gears away from this traditional kind of DevRel stuff and more towards boss. Everything is boss. Everything is let's do boss. Don't get me wrong. I completely agree with the boss narrative. But what I don't agree with is the idea that we're going to push all of support. The end goal was let's push all of support onto near social and then let's have the developers do natural developer relations in that we don't have a team dedicated towards developer relations. The goal is to have the community doing it all and the community answering each other's questions and the community creating examples and the community doing docs and stuff. In theory, it makes total sense, but in practice, it doesn't because Nier's community is not big enough to foster that sort of relationship yet, in my opinion. And the leading kind of efforts have been switched away from Pagoda and towards the dev gov DAO. It's a mouthful. Dev gov DAO. So the near developer governance DAO is maintaining now all of our examples, our documentation, that kind of stuff. And they're meant to 
foster this community growth and this community initiatives is really the mantra that's been communicated to me. And so all my ex coworkers are now doing all boss stuff. And so it's like we put a temporary freeze on documentation and on developer support and office hours and all this kind of stuff. And we're not sending developer relations people to conferences and doing this kind of stuff. Like it's all been paused to do all hands on deck on boss. And I think the unfortunate timing is we were just getting started. We had hired at this amazing team, like developer relations was growing and now people are getting let go and there's not as much of a push towards what we had once been striving towards. And I've been on DevRel for a long time. I still, while I did move teams away from DevRel and onto the integrations team to do software engineering, I still join every single DevRel meeting because it's my family. It's where I grew up and and I can see the shift and it's a little bit awkward, I must say. So yeah, I don't think we're doing a good enough job by any means. I think it can be improved, but I don't know how when there's this switch in kind of vision. To be devil's advocate, could someone argue that the state of the documentation and let's say the baseline information for anyone to join and get going reached a certain level? where now the challenge becomes just getting people through the door. Once you're in, there's documentation there for them to do stuff. But the challenge is, how can we get more people in? Because my understanding is that the blockchain operating system, specifically talking about decentralized frontends, it has been framed almost as a top of the funnel. Can we get as many projects as possible from Ethereum to deploy their frontend near and hopefully once they start playing around with the stack, then they'll start doing more things on Nier. Yeah, is to- that a possibility? Totally. I-, I agree that that boss is a great way to reduce the friction point and to reduce the barrier to entry. Just like with the JavaScript SDK and writing smart contracts in JavaScript, boss is a great way to reduce that friction point and to inspire the door to be bigger to allow for more people to come in and to funnel through and reduce that barrier to entry to get in. I completely agree with that. But if you're talking about grassroots and pushing the tech to the limits, right? I don't know about you, but I don't want another NFT marketplace. I don't want another shit project like NFT, POAP this and POAP that and whatever this and whatever that. I want projects that are pushing the limits and solving real world use cases because why would anyone go from ETH to, to NIR or another chain to NIR if there's just like the same kind of projects? What is inspiring change? And to your initial question of, do our documentation do a good enough job to allow for people to find those use cases and to find those narratives? No, but the switch to boss is good in that it allows for more people to come through. But I guess it's like, what do you prefer a low barrier to entry for new developers or like how do i inspire more technologically advanced projects to be built on the protocol it's a weird kind of scale of what do i almost want more and i think both i think that they can be done in parallel to be honest with you i think that it's it, we shouldn't be like all in on boss right now for docs and for developer support but we should maybe do 50-50 is where I'll, I'll land on this. It's my humble opinion as well. And I think most people with that much contact would probably arrive in the same. To quote the great Eric Trotman, how single-threaded is your team? Can you do parallel execution? Yeah. Someone go and do low-level onboarding, bus, front-ends, whatever. 
some people go get. There may only be five, but there's five founders that are going to build shit that are going to change the world. Yeah. That narrow focus on things is one of the gripes that I've had within your ecosystem in the past. Canceling yeah. regional hubs, community abandoned for months. Now it's being offloaded to the NDC. It should have been done in parallel. But now that brings me to my next point. And it's actually a beautiful way to dive into Keepon. Let the world know what can be built and inspire people to think how they can leverage this tech. Before we jump into that, I just want to say that I ask because I personally sit on the marketing DAO. We've got funding available and we're pushing for more funding. This year, we're moving on to a bounty system so we can create very narrow campaigns targeted at getting specific outcomes. Could be to promote a tech, to promote a sector. The way that we're envisioning bounties is a one pager with all the resources so that content creators can succeed. What it's all the documentation, what's been done in the past, what are some ideas, what is the narrative. One pager. We put out whatever, $10,000. Go for your life. So I think that could be really powerful. There are some limits on how much us content creators can do on the tech side. But it's something that we definitely want to collaborate with Pagoda on. I saw that Max created a post on the DevGov. No one can say this. DevGov gig board asking for marketing support. And I was like, there's a synergy here. You know what's important. We can get people that can do content. So that would be one first, I guess, action item. Let's make sure that we stay in touch and we make use of these bounties. We're already in contact with Shot from Banyan Collective, mm -hmm. a ton of ideas that we really want to action as soon as possible. The second one, speaking of governance, I am really curious about the developer DAO. Is that the one that you're referring to as the one where DevRel work is being shifted to? Yeah. Yeah. That's where a lot of the DevRel work is being shifted to, and they're going to maintain the examples and maintain the documentation and do everything developer focused. And they're also going to start maintaining, from my understanding, the SDKs, the REST SDK, JavaScript SDK, their API JS, everything developer related, from my understanding, is moving over there. Interesting. Is this the DAO run by Max? Three Pagoda employees? Y yes, that's the problem. The problem is that you are offloading the work of dozens and dozens of very smart engineers to a very small subset of engineers. You've got three people now doing the work of dozens. And the hope was that the community would come and help out. But again, my gripe is that we're not there yet. There are community challenges. I spend way too much time every day picking battles that honestly should just be left to die alone. But I am actually more hopeful, perhaps because it's a little bit foreign to me on technical things, because the scope can be defined in much more clear terms. As you were talking, one thing that came to mind is creating a, devel a DevRel working group, because it seems like the direction in which we're going for the NDC is to have these grassroots DAOs. But then to have a process of ongoing decentralization, whereby every time a DAO hits a certain funding cap, like how much you're spending per month, they spin out like new DAOs that are more narrow. So for instance, developer DAO would start with a very broad mandate. And then as DevRel becomes 20, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars a month, they spin out and have a much more focused group. 
What I like about that approach is that it makes the grassroots DAO have much more clear KPIs around being the activator. Identify areas of growth, get the work started, and then give more autonomy to the people in that space. I don't know how it would work because, as I said, the developer DAO is an extension of Pagoda, but not. So yeah, it's kind it of has weird. to be it's kind of like a spin out almost. But what I would like to see is creating a way for anyone in the community to join that group and allocating resources to them. Yeah, but that, that, I think so. But that that's one of the things that they are one of their KPIs and one of their things that they're striving to do is to have community. They don't want to pay people to do this, right? They want people to spend time working on examples and docs and SDKs and stuff for free. Like if they were going to pay people, then just pay the people who were doing it before. But their hope was let's get the community. One of the things is that they want to KPIs is get X amount of con contributions that we're not going to fund or whatever. We want to inspire people to take time and actually work on these for free. I can see how Stack Overflow contributors don't get paid and people just hang out in a community. But I do believe there is a threshold of work, an expectation of work where remuneration needs to come into play. Yeah. Is this a money issue or is no. this a philosophy issue? I think it's a philosophy. I think it's, I think it's more of a, this is not scalable as, or as their community grows it makes more sense to offload to them because they're the ones that are doing this on day-to-day. -day. They know everyone. They're, it's the community, right? They know what they want. They know how to do it versus putting it onto this middleman kind of company that is acting on behalf of the community. Why put it to someone who's acting on behalf of the community when the community can just do it? It's not an issue of money, I don't think. I think it's more of a philosophy and a scalability issue, I think. But yeah, I don't know. It's I don't make the decisions. It's a, yeah. I think there are many parallels here. NF does not much, say the bare minimum, on the community side for months, and then they pass over the baton to the NDC. What's the problem? We have a power vacuum. There's nothing there for the NDC to work with. So it is now up to the NDC to craft a message and put out the bat signal to invite the people in to do the groundwork to then have the framework to empower these communities. Dude, the marketing DAO has taken on this work. Like I'm doing, I've actually resigned recently from my role at Metapool to have more time to craft the guidelines and the framework for the fucking regional DAO that we're funding. The marketing DAO is funding it. Yeah. We've taken the ownership of reactivating these communities. And I'm thinking something similar about the developer relations. For how long is the developer DAO going to be run by Pagoda employees? Hopefully not forever. Yeah. But what are we doing to get new developers in and empower them to self-organize and do shit, get shit done? Yeah, it's funny because now, now I have the same question backwards. Heapum would not have happened if it were not for Pagoda employees. And now the question is, can the developer DAO succeed if it is only Pagoda employees? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I think there's a lot of work to be done on inspiring developers, grassroots support and relations. But who's know, doing the work without bags. pay? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's, yeah. We have the concept of milestones. Community funding is messed up because there's a lot of grifters and scammers. And I've been the first one to identify them, call it out when necessary. 
But the truth is that top performers are expensive. Yeah, I don't disagree. I am in complete agreement. If you're creating X amount of value, it's fair to remunerate you with Y amount of money or its equivalent. I think it's even more extreme when you look at developers because there's high demand for them. Yeah. Like, Having a good developer, yeah, you're a hot commodity if you're a good developer right now, especially in Web3. And I'll tell you something that I've been plotting in my head. Alpha? Leak? Yeah. There is an issue, a big issue, with the distribution and or concentration of nearing the ecosystem. Investors have a shit ton. Foundation has a shit ton that they have to disperse. It's over 100 million near. It's meant to go to the NDC and the Community Trust. That's why nobody wants to engage with it because it seems like a circus. But at the same time, it's the most important thing that we have to do. There's a lot of near that needs to be distributed to the community. But the other one is early contributors have disproportionate rewards to early foundation employees. You can map when do they hit the cliff to get the near, everyone gets out. Do you think that I think it is fair that I've been doing similar work I've got counterparts oh, to foundation that, employees. Do you know how many times I've I got talked paid. to people about what the hell is going on with AVB situation? Just hire him. He's doing the same work as Pagoda employee. It's hilarious. I apply. That's a separate story. Through marketing DAO, we got paid an average of 400 near per month for all of last year. Yeah, that's disgusting. You tell me how much near just in bonus my counterparts have. I know it ranges from 100,000 to a million. So my idea is to try to realign incentives, to create a way for grassroots DAOs to be able to distribute locked near, make it optional. The applicant can opt into receiving unlocked near, USDC, or locked near. And if they choose to be paid in locked near tokens, give them a bonus. Yeah. Fuck it, I don't care. 20, 50, 100%. Yeah. We want people to be here for the long run. And yeah. we want people creating value now to accumulate a meaningful share of the protocol. I agree. I agree 100%. It, w- giving, giving unlocked, there's, I don't really see the point in giving out grants of unlocked near to PFP projects or to this project or that project or to developers and whatever. Lock it, inspire them to stay, and build out the grassroots. I agree. Every situation is very different. We've always tried to avoid, by the design of the system, only attracting people that are already personally wealthy. If you only advertise a role for people that don't need the payment, very narrow selection. So I can understand that if you put up a proposal because you're doing work, you probably have to pay rent or you have a kid, a dog, whatever. But in some cases, you can definitely align. Maybe do it hybrid. You only lock... 80% 80% or 50% of your amount. What we want to create is that long-term incentive or at least yeah. the option to be more closely aligned. Yeah, I agree. Sir Benjamin, are you Benjamin or just Ben? I go by many names in the Web3 space. Ben, Benji, Ben, Keepom, whatever. Doesn't matter. Beautiful. Sir Ben, are you ready I, for I, dog I, time? I, I think so. Beautiful. So I think we can go anyway, but I may read the Keepom executive summary just to give everyone an overview of what Keepom is. I, I think it's, it's, nah, we'll run through it. 
But then what I'd like to do is let's look at all the different types of link drops and use cases and have a hybrid between explaining the technology or the magic that makes it possible, but blend it with some use cases so that we can both appeal to people that will get the tech and people that just want to know why this matters or why this is important. Sure. How does that sound? Let's get going. Keepon provides zero friction onboarding and transactions for Nier. We allow people to experience the value of blockchain technology regardless of if they have a wallet or not. All the complications such as seed phrases, private keys, transactions, and other crypto jargon can be abstracted away from the user. We provide a means for people to use decentralized applications without even knowing they are on chain. Our goal is to be a community-driven public good that aims to show the world what is possible when you push Nier's technology to the limits. For the foreseeable future, our APIs will be completely fee-free. Ben, make sure you don't get fired from Pagoda. We need to keep this going. Our entire solution is on-chain, no centralized databases, and everything is run using your smart contracts. Incredible. Ben, this is beautiful. I love this. This is the sort of technology and documentation that keep me around. Yeah. We I hired a technical writer. He's my buddy actually. He I've spent six to eight months training him and mentoring him in everything near access keys, the model, everything to try to get him prepared. And he's just blown it out of the park. He's done such a good job with this documentation. So kudos, kudos to him. Min, I love you. Min Khan Lu, you are awesome. You there? You're back. The house is on fire. I'm sorry. No, I went to get the charger because last two podcasts, the computer has literally shot off and I'm like, Uh-oh. it's not a good look. Yeah. Shout out to Min. Yeah. Min's done a great job. Seriously. He's done an awesome job with with these docs so far. And he's thrown this together in three months. Very excited to see how this comes out and expands. We've got some really cool plans. The biggest tutorial that we shipped was the first advanced tutorial. And that's a zero to hero for ticketing, showing how you can create your own ticketing experiences. Right now, he's working on DAOs and how you can auto-register your users into a DAO and create DAO proposals with the click of a link and vote on DAOs and all this kind of stuff. And then I'm also working on like the trial account docs and creating trial account experiences. And we can, we, I shipped today a new sort of tutorial on offboarding your users, offboarding trial users, which is pretty neat. So yeah, there's a ton of really cool stuff here in the works and he's done a great job. Ben, you've mentioned that Keypalm is pushing the limits of what is possible on Near. I'm really curious if we could look at two things. The first one is what problems exist in the blockchain space that Near is tackling and Keypalm is leveraging. And that could probably be a really good way as well if you're familiar and you feel comfortable to maybe highlight some of the ways in which Near is different from other major L1s like Solana or Avalanche. And some of the ways in which Keepom leverages this to create experiences or products that could not be possible in these other ecosystems. Sure. Yeah. So in, in full transparency again, and I say this every time someone asks me, it's hilarious that when I'm at conferences and I'm working the booth and I'm doing DevRel stuff, pe- people will come up to me and be like, so Nier, how's it different from, how's it different from Avalanche? How's it different from Polygon and Solana and whatever? 
And I always say the same thing. And I know some of the other DevRel people say the same thing. It's we're not here to focus on how we differ specifically from the other chains and compare and contrast. We do that, they do that. We're not here to shit on these other chains. We just know how to explain our technology in an amazing way. And we are subject matter experts for our tech and know why it's amazing and all the crazy cool use cases that you can do with that. The Coles notes, the real truthful answer is I don't know. Honestly, I don't know enough about Avalanche and Polygon and Solana outside of like just the high level stuff in the media because I don't really spend my time worrying and like looking about the different technologies and stuff like that. With that being said, I think it's important for someone on the Keypom team to know that. And that is Matt. Matt knows a lot more about the other chains and the cross-chain narratives and how we differ and all that kind of stuff. I'm just the nerdy guy that sits in the back and just writes all the code. With that being said, Matt writes code too, don't get me wrong. And I do marketing as well. But Matt is more of a subject matter expert when it comes to other chains and how we differ. So I don't know if I can answer that specifically, but I can give you exactly how we leverage Nier's built-in and baked-in account abstraction model to create these experiences that I know you can't do on the other chain because I know for a fact that Nier is the only one with limited access key. Different, like your account has different keys and you can have multiple keys on your account and each key can be a different type. And, and that is at the very core what powers the entire protocol. I've got an analogy. And you tell right. me if it's a good one. All right, let's hit it. Who knows? Maybe I'll get hired as a muggle DevRel. The not Dev DevRel. Yeah. A, a, so, more of the Rel side, a Rel DevRel. Yeah, the Rel Rel. So Ethereum right. has public address, private key, one yes. to one. Yes. Near has public address, many private keys. Yes. So at this stage, the example that I give to people is literally a door. Ethereum's got one key. You can make a thousand copies. A thousand people can go through that door. And it, it's, it's like. It's actually, it's hilarious that I was thinking of the exact. If you were going to come up with a really shitty analogy, I was going to use the door analogy. But here, I'll, I won't steal your spotlight. Go ahead. It's the first heuristic that comes to mind because of a physical key. I assume most of us have doors around us every yes. time you. In fact, I'm sure that we could run some psychological analysis and people that don't think of the door as a first analogy are probably psychopaths. I love it. But moving on to near, and I have in my head the door of my Airbnb in Brazil. It's like having a door, but instead of a physical key, it's got a pad where you enter a code to come in and you can issue any number of codes, different codes, and give them to different people. That was actually not the door analogy that I was thinking of, but now you've intrigued me. Okay, interesting. So it's a pad, it's a keypad, and you've got a different, a bunch of different codes to get in. Yeah, okay, I like it. Now, let's take that and let's actually play on that and expand it a little bit. So instead of a keypad, it's still a regular, it's still a regular door. So you own a neighborhood, you, or you're a landlord, and you own a bunch of different houses. And some of those houses have a lot of very valuable assets in it. They have the records to your bank account, right? Some houses have all the documentation, your passport, whatever, copies of your passport, all that kind of stuff. If you were to get into that house, then you have. You can basically take, if anyone got into that house, they could take complete access over your identity. They can take all your money. It holds a lot of very important information in those houses. But you also have houses in your sort of landlord 
world that are wooden houses with not a lot of stuff in it. You've only you've got like a gift card to Walmart in there, right? So you've got a bunch of different houses and each house has a different key that unlocks it. Some keys unlock the wooden cabins that have gift cards to Walmart and Tim Hortons if you're in Canada. And, and the other houses have mansions or the other houses are mansions with all of your very valuable assets. On Mir, you are the landlord and you have a bunch of different houses, each that can be unlocked by a different key. Depending on the key, you can get access to different assets. That is the account model on Nier. The mansions are the full access keys. If anyone had access to your full access key, they can steal all your Nier, they can deploy contracts, they can attach Nier to function calls, they can delete your entire account. It is your, it is Ethereum, it's like Ethereum's regular keys, right? They have complete control over the account. On the contrary, keys that unlock these sort of cabins, those are called limited access keys. So there's the full access and the limited access keys. Those limited access keys can only be used to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to call a function on a contract. And you cannot attach any deposit to that function call. So it's literally just, I want to execute a method on a predefined contract. In the key, you can specify what contract, what methods, the allowance, so how much gas it can be used or it can use. Because again, every transaction on near costs gas, costs money. And so you can say that this key can only use up to one near worth of gas. And that way, if you gave someone a key with 100 million near worth of allowance, they could just keep using it and drain your account for the transaction costs, right? But those keys cannot be used to attach deposits. They can only be used to burn gas, and you can specify exactly what contracts and what methods. And so behind the scenes, every single time you log into an application on Near, you get sent over, for example, to Mine Your Wallet. You approve, when you hit the login button, you select Mine Your Wallet, get redirected over, you hit confirm, and you come back. Why are you getting redirected? Behind the scenes, what's happening is that app is trying to create a limited access key for itself. Essentially meaning it wants to use that access key to call methods on its contract on your behalf. Because every time you sign into an app, you are giving that app a limited access key that they will use to sign transactions on your behalf. And why do we want a limited access key? What would happen if I signed into an app and I gave them my full access key? They could be a super nice, amazing, friendly person that actually... Right. Yeah, you're bricked. You're bricked, right? Because that app can take that access key, steal all your near, delete your account, whatever, blah, 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 right? So you don't want to give an app a, a full access key. And that's why you give them limited access keys. And then any action that you do on those apps requires full access permissions, such as attaching a deposit or doing this or, do, you know, they will redirect you over to the Minear Wallet portal where you approve that transaction. Why Minear Wallet portal? That's because Minear Wallet has your full access key. The wallets are the only places in theory that should have your full access keys. And so instead of signing that transaction with your limited access key, what happens behind the scenes, you click a button to mint an NFT, which costs 10 near. It's, hey, I've only got this limited access key. I can't do this. Let's go to my near wallet and sign the transaction with the full access key. So you go there, you approve the transaction and you come back, right? So that behind the scenes 
is a complete high-level overview of access keys on Nier, and that is the backbone of the Keypon protocol. Much better than my explanation, for sure. And I'm actually very happy that you caught me off before I went on with my analogy because it kept getting worse. I was like, yeah, once you enter the house with a single contract and a single method, it's not a door to a house. It's a fucking black hole. And depending on the code you put in, it just takes you somewhere else. But you can only do specific things. Yeah, black holes and wormholes and space and travel and I'm telling you, I was able to get this much better at East Denver with edibles, but yeah. That's awesome. There's a few concepts there that don't overlap, but people confuse all the time. So I want to clear them up. Oh, yeah, here. The first one is full access keys, key sure. rotation, and sure. migrating to new wallets. My understanding is that near wallets have the ability to actually issue more than one set of full access private keys. Yeah, you can have, if you're the landlord, you can have multiple mansions, multiple different houses. And each of those house, houses are a full access key, right? So you can have one full access key, two, you can have 100 million full access keys. It doesn't matter. So for private key rotation, what you do is issue a new full access key and then delete the old one? Exactly. So stage one, you have one full access key that might have been exposed. Stage two, You use that full access key to create another one. So now you have two full access keys, one of which was exposed, the other which only you have because you just created it now. Stage three is you use one of the full access keys, could be the old one, could be the new one, doesn't matter, to delete the old one. And now, boom, it's gone. You only have the one that you control and the person still has your raw string. They still have your private key behind the scenes, but on chain, it doesn't exist on your account anymore. So if they were to try to sign a transaction with that private key, it would go and say, sorry, this access key doesn't exist on the account anymore. I was doing some gnarly investigation on Pike Speak, just trying to map where some funds have gone. There's some shady stuff happening to the ecosystem sometimes. And some of the Genesis accounts, oh geez, they've replaced their private keys. And at the time, I didn't quite get the concept. And at the time, the indexers weren't good at all. If there had been a private key replacement, the threat was lost. And I was like, holy shit, these people are so corrupt. They're even hiding their tracks. But I get it better now. Another thing really quickly to, to touch on while we're talking about keys is that account doesn't actually have to have any keys. And that is the concept of being a locked account on Near. Why is that useful? Holy shit, mind blown. Imagine you're a contract, you're a DeFi contract or something, or you're, I don't know, a fungible token contract, and you do not want the ability to update your contract. Why would you want that? It's a trust thing. If you're a user, you don't want someone to be able to update the contract to introduce a backdoor for them to sift funds out. Right. So at any point, if you have a full access key, you can deploy a contract to your account. So if let's say there's a DeFi contract that allows users to deposit funds into the contract in order to like do stuff at any point, if that account had a full access key, they could deploy a patch fix to the contract that allowed someone to come and steal funds. So once an account is locked, zero changes can be made to that account at all. 
And that can be bad sometimes too, though, because if you find an exploit in your contract, there is zero way for you to fix that. And I think there was a there was an exploit found in a near contract a couple of months ago that was locked. It was a DeFi. I don't. I forgot what it was. Sky, Skyward. Yes, it was Skyward. Yeah, there was an exploit found in the Skyward contract, and they locked their contract, meaning they couldn't deploy a patch fix. But so there's a trust aspect there. Yeah. So that means that the only full access key has the power to delete itself. Yes, only a full access key can delete any other type of key, and only a full access key can create another key. That's why, actually, when you hit sign in on any app, you get redirected over to the near wallet to approve that initial transaction. Because what's happening is you're approving a transaction that will create the limited access key that the app will then use to sign transactions on your behalf. That's wild. It is. How does it work on Ethereum? Can you delete a private key on Ethereum or does it have to be a multi-seek and people allegedly burn the key? Honestly, I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know how it works on, on ETH. All I know is key and then account. It's a one-to-one. -one. I don't know if you can delete keys on ETH though. I'm honest. I honestly have no idea. I wish Matt I was think there's been... Usually they do like a multi-seek and then they do some sort of a trusted setup where they say that they burnt the private key, but technically it still exists. So you have to trust a human. Yeah. But near is better. Let's just settle that. Near is better. Ben, that was a really good and useful explanation because I've come across that concept of locking the smart contract several times. And this has really helped in understanding it. First time was probably Ref Finance. I sit on the community board and I think we've locked the farming contract and all these contracts over time get locked, but also we're still developing the platform. So some of them are not locked. It's also come up with Metapool. We actually don't support V1 nodes at the moment because V1 nodes are upgradable. And the reason why V1 nodes are upgradable is because they can add or remove extra incentives. Yeah. So it, it was an interesting conversation around us not wanting to have upgradable nodes for various security reasons. And then Eugene coming in and saying, yes, these contracts are upgradable, but they're only upgradable on a very, very limited range of parameters. So the security risks are very much mitigated. So it's like you keep going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see like what you can do on near and these access keys are the backbone of the entire keypon protocol and every link drop as a whole so it's pretty cool and you can only do this on near because of the baked in sort of account abstraction and access key model do you know what the story or the inspiration is behind this model are there any parallels in the web 2 world because i find that a lot of things on near are like groundbreaking and then you look at Web2 and it's, yeah, we've you, been You got to have that. Ellie on this podcast. I don't know. I can message him. I'm trying. I'm like, dude, I don't care if we have to do it on an airplane. I'll follow you in the toilets, whatever. I want two hours of your time. That's all I'm asking for. We've never managed. Yeah. I don't know. Where, I don't know. Yeah, because it was funny. I think it was a couple months ago when we were first starting to really blow our minds with what's possible with Keypom. I, I tweeted and I, I asked Ellie, I was like, I wonder if you guys like thought of all these use cases before. Because this is crazy. We're discovering things every day. Because I honestly, I feel like it was like they created this sandbox, but I had no idea what they just created. Like in Minecraft, where the developers created this open world game where you can do pretty much anything. 
And then two years down the road, someone created a fucking computer in Minecraft and it's a working computer with RAM and whatever, like everything. And I feel like the developers didn't intend, they were just creating a cool open world game that then blew up and people are just discovering things every day and creating cool new experiences. We're the Minecraft of Web3. For all the geeks out there that just got a boner, did Ilya reply? What did he say? No, I didn't reply. Ilya hates me. I'm kidding. I have reasons to believe he listens to this podcast. He probably doesn't. But what are some of these use cases? I think we've been teasing people for an hour and a half. It's probably time to start speedballing some of the ideas. I also have some ideas of my own. I think I told you briefly during our call last week, but I'm happy to share them with the world. The biggest use case right now is trial accounts, without a doubt. The mere idea of being dropped into an application after choosing a username and being instantly signed in is extremely powerful for onboarding. And for the listeners that are not too sure what the heck a trial account is, it's essentially I'm giving you an account that you create right then and there. You can customize the username. I'm giving you the ability to create an account that can only be used on my application. It's like I'm giving you a gift card for my app rather than dropping you cash. Because what happens if I drop you cash? You're just going to take that cash and run. Or spend it on drugs. Exactly. And drugs are bad. Don't do drugs, kids. But yeah, so it's a Sybil resistant way of giving someone a trial for your application. And this can be paired with an unbelievable amount of experiences. Let's say you're a gaming company, you're building on Mir, and you want to onboard or you want to run a promotional campaign that is promoting a new game that you're doing. Let's say you're like, I don't know, creating a new version Counter-Strike 2 because that's relevant. And as part of that, you want people to use your new game. What you can do is you can incentivize them with a trial account. That trial account can actually come preloaded with a set of assets. So you can be dropped into a game with an existing NFT sword, with a backpack and whatever. Like you can be dropped in with assets, with NFTs, with fungible tokens. Let's say you get dropped in with like $100 worth of in-game currency and a cool starting sword. And you're just immediately using the game and whatever and doing all this cool stuff. And you cannot take that account and run with it. It can only be used on that game until your trial is over, at which point then you onboard fully, right? So you can get dropped into experiences with existing assets and that dropping experience is seamless. Enter a username and you're signed in. What is more seamless than that? What I love about this is that it is a beautiful interplay between user experience. How can you create something small, smooth, that before you know it, the user is already in and activated, but also it's about human behavioral design. What do you want the user to do? And this is where we're trying to spark people's imagination. If you could get the user to do anything, because the technology is not a barrier, like we remove the friction from blockchain, what do you want them to do? I've come up with many examples. Alpha leak? Yeah. Let's start with the generic ones. Because I think I read that trial accounts are able to pull the funds back for any unused funds. Yes. That's dope. It is dope. Um, you can also set as a developer, and here's where things get a little bit gnarly, 
I don't want to scare people, but you can set in the conditions of the trial that in order for you to exit and remove all restrictions from the account, you have to pay me back because I sponsored your account. You got the experience, now pay me back for it. Now that can be done in multiple different ways. One is I sell on-chain assets that I got during my trial. Or two is you go through uh, the exchange process or you send assets from an external account. That can be done. It's completely optional. Keep in mind, we're not forcing people to do this. But in this model, we push the onboarding until after you've experienced the app. Because right now, it's go through KYC, go through fucking exchanges, go through all this crap. When you don't even know what you're going to be experiencing, why would you do that? It's It blows my mind. This is something that even in Web2 products, and I know because I've spent the last week signing up for a ton of things, mostly around AI, the show notes for the podcast may or may not be written by AI now. And even That's to awesome. this day, there's different camps around onboarding. Free trials are pretty common. But even within free trials, is it going to be literally a free trial? Is it based on time, seven days? Is it based on consumption of the product? Some allow me to upload one podcast, regardless of how long. Some allow me to upload 60 minutes. And even, or is it going to be a freemium model, like free forever with pared down functionality, and then you pay it to get more? Do you ask for a credit card? Some of them ask for a credit card up front. Some of them don't even ask for an email. So it is definitely up to the entrepreneur, the builder, and the specific use case to tweak around with this. And I just love that now we have that flexibility in Web3 through something can, can like Keypalm. Can I tell you my absolute favorite experience that I've ever seen that is being built? Okay, that's a bit caveat. I'll let you go first because after I tell you mine, they will become your new favorite. I just need to okay, find somebody right. to build. Sure. sure. So this is an experience that, that is being built that is unparalleled. And that is incorporating ticketing with trial accounts. So you can imagine and the tickets being able to be purchased with Stripe or with another on-ramp. Imagine a world where as an event organizer, because right now in Web3 ticketing, you're giving away all these tickets, but it's not scalable because you want to make money from it, right? Imagine a world where you have an event organizer that wants to create multiple different tiers of tickets, a VIP ticket, an early bird ticket, this type of ticket, standard ticket, whatever ticket, each with their own different set of permissions and their own starting lo loyalty points. Now, here's where things get interesting. You go to a portal, kind of like Eventbrite, you check out with Stripe, exactly like in Web2, and you receive a link. That is your ticket. It is an access key. It is a key drop. Those drops come preloaded with different assets depending on the tier that you bought. When you show up to the event, you just show them their QR code. This can be put into your Apple wallet or whatever, whatever Web2 style, whatever you want. You get scanned in by the bouncer within 200 milliseconds. Yes, 200 milliseconds is pretty fast. You get led into the event, you reload your page, and you are instantly dropped into a trial account and you're in a portal. That portal is like a dashboard for the event where you can purchase things, you can make transactions, you can play games, get rewards, all with no signing, no mention of anything. You just input your username, like whatever, Benji's AVB podcast, whatever. And it creates the trial account. You get dropped into this portal and you're running around, you're scanning things, you're, let's say you play whack-a-mole and you come number one, 
you can show them your QR code, they scan it, and boom, you've got an NFT. Let's say you are purchasing beer tokens, or sorry, let's say you're purchasing beer. What is the problem right now when you're at events? This is not the problem, but it's a problem. And that is every time... Go ahead. Sitting for dogs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. Like when you're at, let's say you're at the intermission and you go up and you want to buy a beer. What happens? You have a line of 250 people all putting in their credit card into the machine, typing one, blah, 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 waiting like two seconds, pulling it out, getting the beer. And it's a very serial way of doing things. With these trial accounts, what you can do is the beer vendor can just expose one QR code showing buy a beer, scan this. And on their portal, they scan it. And depending on the type of ticket you got, you have a different set of starting loyalty points. And those points are like, you've got 10 beer tokens. You got 10 tokens. This beer costs three tokens. And if you got the VIP, you started with 50 tokens. If you got early bird, you started with 25. If you got standard, you have zero. And you can always go somewhere and give them 25 bucks and they can show that you show them their QR code and they here's 25 points or whatever. Anyway, so now you have everyone scanning these on their phone in parallel. And then when you're done your purchase, you just show them the confirmation screen. They zip it up again, 200 millisecond quick read call and they give you the beer. So you have everyone doing things in parallel. Depending on the type of ticket you have, you have different permissions. You can get into the backstage. You can scan things. You get scanned. You have this entire portal all with on-chain transactions and trial accounts happening behind the scenes. And maybe after the event, your trial is over and you go to boss. <laughs> boss. But yeah, that's a great use case for getting dropped assets, getting dropped a trial account, making on-chain transactions and ticketing and solving some like real-world use cases. Look, if this gets you dropping asset, assets, nah, nah, too much, too much. I love it. So is this being built? It's being built. One thing that came to mind as you started talking, and I'm wondering if it's possible, is could you have a referral process tied into it? So let's say if you refer five people, you get a bonus or something. That's one thing that I've never quite understood about near accounts. I know it's there. And I'm even wondering how many people are leveraging it. Accounts have a state and that state can change. What the fuck does that mean? And I don't think we have enough time to talk about that. But what I will say is that you can do baked into the protocol right now in 30 minutes a referral program where you give out links. So let's say I give you a link, you click that link and that link exposes a bunch of different QR codes or something that those QR codes each need to be scanned and a new account created before your assets are unlocked. You could totally implement something like that with Keypalm where you have to do a set of things before rewards are unlocked. And this, I think, is going to be really powerful for upcoming events where it's like a scavenger hunt almost where you're, you're unlocking things by doing things. A perfect example is you come to the booth at Nier. You scan a QR code and instead of us just giving you two near right then and there and then no one ever coming back to the near booth because that's what happens right now. We give you a business card with a link drop on it for two near. You take it, you scan it and you never come again. Instead of doing that, why don't we introduce something like a scavenger hunt where you scan, you get dropped into a trial account and then you get rewards by showing up to talks. So you show up to all of the different talks and each talk you show up to, you get a prize. And then maybe at the end, once you've showed up to every single talk, you get a, like a grand prize or something or doing activations like that. This is where I want to see more grassroots initiatives. Keypalm is open, accessible to anyone. It's got the SDK. 
And this ties in with what we mentioned at the beginning around taking risks, experimentation, and being unique. The way that I see it is you have to put these QR codes in the bathroom. Yeah. You know, what will people 100% attend at some point during the day? The bathroom. Put them in the urinal, put a funny meme, scan now one ear, and you receive some sort of a message. These are the talks. If you show up to each, dude, you can do really cool stuff like that are definitely on the experimental bucket. I think scavenger hunt campaigns like this would fall within the realm of the marketing DAO. I see that as a marketing and activation campaign and onboarding. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, there, there's definitely some really cool things where it's do X amount of stuff before you unlock Y amount of rewards. And that can be in-person scavenger hunts or show up to my talk or do this or whatever, or refer five people to my thing before you do that. You could, it can be really anything, but it's a really powerful onboarding activation. That's, it's something that inspires sort of people to do things. And it's an engaging opportunity to activate people rather than just scan it, try to figure out what it is it's too near. What the hell's a too near? I don't care. But it's do tangible things. It's more engaging. People in Web3 don't get it because they are already in and deep or they're like far away. But an analogy that I give to people is ask someone to explain to you the flavor of a Subway cookie. Oh, they I, can't. I fucking love Subway cookies, man. Oh my God. Yeah. So yeah. Good. Everyone. They're I good. to a fairly high degree of certainty convinced that they put crack cocaine or something <laughs> in those cookies. That's a point is. When you smell it and when you taste it, that is the experience that converts. You want to increase sales, make the smell go around the mall, put someone at the front with free cookies. You yeah. don't have to explain it to people. Oh yeah, we put crack in here to grab it. Just give it to them. Near has oh, to be yeah. the same. The account yeah. model, the permissioning, that's the crack. Yeah. How do we build experiences that after people are done, they say, holy shit. I want more. Where do I come? And that's how we get developers to come to Nier. We show them the cool use cases. Nailed it. Yeah. I've been Ex saying the same thing for a year and a half. Experiences aimed at developers and builders where the final outcome is, what can I do with this? Yeah. Yeah, a, this was a cool. A quote from Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. If you build these experiences that can only be done on near, developers will come, they will see that, and they will be like, oh my God, I want something like that for my users and for my application. How do I get started? Instead of telling them, instead of going to conferences and being like, we got the cool account abstraction model baked in with access keys and whatever, people are like, I don't care. I don't even care. I'm like, fuck, the only thing that brought me to Nier was the fact that it was carbon neutral because I knew what that meant. I didn't, like, if I had to pick between ETH and Nier and they were both carbon neutral, I like, I wouldn't care that Nier has cool access key, whatever. Show me, show, don't tell. You need to provide them with something tangible that they can understand and they can see rather than just telling them that we have it, right? Because if you look at the projects, there's no projects that really do it. There's no projects that really use it. We got, what, a couple of NFT marketplaces and some DeFi and stuff. Like, cool, great. You have that on other chains too. Which is why I've been part of the marketing DAO, even though I'm not a marketer. That's why we're pushing towards bounties. And that's why I'm just, in general, so interested to have these conversations. Why I asked you, could these have been built by anyone else other than Pagoda DevRels? Now, while people build, let's do two things. 
First, a rapid fire round. I'll give you some ideas, real world applications. You can tell me A, if it's possible, B, in simple terms, the tech stack that makes it possible. Everything's in the documentation so people can go and check it out if it draws their interest. And second, before I forget, can we please get this could be OG? We can charge for this. This could be a fundraiser. Can we have key palmer like bodysuits? I want to see if Denver last year, Buffy Corns bodysuits and key palmer bodysuits. <laughs> and so I would have been paid to see them just beat each other to death and see who the fuck wins. We'll, we'll reach out to marketing DAO because it'd be a pretty cool marketing activation. I'm a yes. I would have to talk to the others. <laughs> oh, you don't think it's an easy sell? Come on, man. Look, our stance is very simple on a spectrum, but loosely, we're very much aligned with the Supreme Court definition of pornography in the 60s or obscenity. You know it when you see it. <laughs> Dude, show us value. We've got yeah. money. I'm screaming off the rooftop. We've got fucking cash. Who's creating value? Yeah. We'll give you money, do more, and we want more like you. But anyway, let's make Keep on a success and we'll fund those bodysuits, costumes, I don't know what it's called. We'll, f we'll figure it out. Now, use cases in no particular order. First, I'm a digital nomad, Mr. International, the human shard. Okay. A real struggle, especially for crypto people, is to find mid to long-term accommodation. In Colombia, even if I paid upfront, they just won't give you a contract because you don't have a local bank account. You don't have any credit history. They told me that if I had a local bank account, I could create like a term deposit and then sign a contract giving rights to the real estate agency. They're very old school in that way. They're still relying very much on the legal infrastructure. I'm thinking, could it be possible to set up a vault whereby I put in all the money or whatever parameters yes. the real estate agency requires? Yeah. Lock it. They can deduct the money. Easy yep. does it. 100%. Yeah. Load up some USDC in there. Give them a drop. They don't need to have a wallet. Who cares? You can set parameters. 100 USDC per month, 10,000 USDC per month, whatever. It doesn't matter. You can change that. You can do first month, 10 grand, second month, two grand, whatever. Give them a key. You're done. And they can only withdraw it at the parameters that you've set. So it's already done. And when I say done, I mean it's possible, but no one's built it. Okay. So if anyone listening to this wants to build it, I'm happy to whore myself out around the world onboarding. Dude, there's a ton of smaller accommodation websites that would probably embrace something like this. Coliving.com. I use one in Colombia. I forget the name. But yeah, they're all aimed at that sort of like term stay for nomads. Okay. Next. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Meetups. Say I attend the Auckland blockchain meetup or I create the near Auckland meetup. Upon arrival, everyone can scan a QR code, get a wallet, get some near, maybe get a pop-up and or join the meetup that is now run as a DAO. Can, can you mix and match? Oh yeah, of course. Now, Alpha, we're rewriting the entire protocol, the entire Keypon protocol to introduce an unbelievable amount of use cases. It's crazy. That alpha will blow people's minds. That will come next quarter. So look out for that. It will change everything. But anyway, so yes, currently, you're good to go. This is giving me a stroke. 
stupid it, writing it gives me a stroke man it's crazy but it's cool as heck it's insane let's just say right now we operate in a one-dimensional domain but in the next quarter we'll be operating in a three-dimensional domain blow people's minds i know it's hot in here but i've got a question let's go hit me this is something that people ask me in no uncertain terms and we've reached a point of concern they ask me why should i build on near like why are there any reassurances for me as a builder putting my entire business that the chain will be there in two years time and i guess the question is around longevity what does rewriting the protocol for the next quarter mean for the people building in Keypalm today? Is it going to change for them? Should they wait? How should we think about that? It will just introduce more use cases. That's it. It will introduce a ton of more use cases and make things cheaper and make things easier to use. But yeah, it brings O of N squared more use cases. But all the legacy applications. They'll, they'll, they'll all work. Like when I say we rewrite the protocol, it means we're just going to introduce a new contract. You can still use the old ones if you want, but every time we release like a breaking change, we don't force people to go through that route. We just, it's like an additive, like a new contract. Use it if you want, but you can still use these ones. It doesn't matter. Beautiful. Amazing. Next. All right. Hit me. I mentioned this idea during the call last week, but I want to share it with the world. All right. Australia and New Zealand have a very unique setup because here we're communists. We have compulsory student union fees. Students get extorted up to $326 per year. And I think in Australia, the market, it's $300 million plus per year. Universities get first tips on how to spend the money on user experience. And then the rest of the money goes to the Young Marxist Association. I'm thinking of ways in which we could extend more of that money to the students. So there's a multi-layer approach. The first one would be to start super grassroots. Can we go to student clubs and societies and offer them to do the membership for their clubs on chain? Send 100%. all the existing, it could be two tiers to this. First, all the existing members a link, automatically join NFT. Second tier, send all the students a link, asking them to join if there's a payment to Stripe. 100%. Yep. Totally, 100%. Dude, you name it, you can build it, pretty much. It's crazy. It's insane. You just need to understand how you can navigate around the Keypon protocol, which is what we're trying to solve with these extensive documentation, you know, and we're starting to come out with more and more complex tutorials and stuff. It's going back to what we were talking about with the NIR protocol. Can you build these like Keypon applications? But now it's like we're one level deep and it's like I'm creating the docs to allow for people to understand ways to push Keypalm to its limits instead of near to its limits and create the Keypalm of near, but the Keypalm of Keypalm. Meta. Yeah, it's pretty now, cool. Like every good lawyer that it's worth its money, I'm going to keep asking questions even if I already know the answer. All right. Second tier of my university expansion and takeover plan. Can we create a loyalty program, say, with one of the cafes on campus so that when a club and society member that has a membership on chain goes to that cafe, whatever, they scan a QR code and they accrue points. We can create some sort of like nice incentives or relationship there. Yeah, you can do that 100%. And could we create a model whereby 
the university transfers, well, the university or the student union, whoever holds the funds, transfers funds directly to the students to be spent only on campus on a limited range of things such as parking, library, food, gym. Enter trial accounts or uh, the function calls. Blow my mind. Holy shit. Yeah, you can do that. I swear to the listeners, these are not loaded questions. I'm not saying yes to everything because pre defined these questions. Seriously, I'm, we're not. But you can do everything that, that AVB had just talked about for sure. And the amazing thing is that, as we mentioned briefly, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how it's going so far, community members have taken up the initiative to hold a flexathon, which is literally a hackathon to flex the technology. There are two. It should have been called a hackapom. That's going to be the next one. We need to have many of these. Yeah, yeah. We can call it a hackapom next time. If you're listening to this and you want to organize a hackapom, reach out. Marketing Dow will pay for it. I love it. Disclosure. Yeah. No, Marketing Dow didn't pay for this one. We elevated this one to the events team, but it is within our scope. Yeah. So there's two streams. There is a coded one, which I'm super intrigued to see what we get. But there also there is a non-coded one, which I love because we certainly need a lot more ideation. Yeah. it's. I'm excited to see what happens with that. Last one, could we create an inverted VC model? Instead of VCs giving each portfolio company hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, can we create trial accounts to be distributed to target populations, the desired customer segments, preloaded with money that can only be spent on the portfolio companies? Yes. Damn. Yes, you can. A16Z, please contact us. I don't know if you're taking money, but I am. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, this is all possible. I know that we've talked about the technology and the docs are there, but the reason why we're like some of these examples that I'm giving is because they highlight that exercise of looking for problems in the real world or areas where the technology can allow you to improve. Yeah. So if you 100%. look at the university spending money or improving the user experience, there's a lot of issues there around transparency that it's very easy to see how just transferring the money back to the students that they just paid won't cut it. But if yeah. you can have a much more tailored solution, which by the way, how much would it cost to run this? Ben, say you have 100,000 students and on average each does whatever, 250 transactions in a semester. I can't give you that number right now. I'd have to. But it's cheap, that. right? Yeah, it's ridiculously cheap. For the amount of value transacted, like you could even have microtransactions. Yeah, 100%. We could finally pay for it's the so mythical cheap. coffee on chain. Yes, exactly. Same with VCs. Like the problem that I see is capital allocation is a real challenge. And it would be great if you could optimize towards the validation of the product. You know that the money is going to hit the portfolio company anyway, but you want to encourage users to go there and be early adopters and provide feedback. I guess you could have some contingency to it, but no one spends the money, you get the money back. Done. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, man, that's so it's it. There's a bunch of stuff that you can do on the protocol. We're continuously shipping documentation, tutorials, or engaging with a community. We're trying to figure out what, you know, is possible, what's not possible. One of the big things we're doing is we're working a lot with NFBD to look at some of the pipeline projects that are coming in, seeing what their needs are. If their needs aren't explicitly fulfilled in our documentation, we'll ship it. And that way, anyone else with similar problems, we'll just point them to docs and the community will see those docs. Everything I think is about docs right now and informing people, creating examples, 
showing it off and bringing devs from all around the world to create these use cases and to create these experiences that you can only do on Nier. With that, I think I think we're slightly over time. So thank you. Ben sits on his ass all day and he wants to go for a walk on this beautiful Canadian day. I do. It's very nice outside and the sun is setting. So I'm going to cut you short. I get but not really short, but it's a beautiful day for all my listeners out there. Go outside. Enjoy the summer. Hopefully you're watching this during summer. If you're in the winter, still go outside. But yeah, just grab you. a coat. Ben, thanks yeah. so much. I really appreciate your time. I've learned a ton today, even though I already knew about Key Palmer. And I hope that people listening get the same feeling that I have right now. Let's fucking build. Just ship it, baby. Ship it. Flex the tech. Thank you so much, AB, for your time. And, and I will hope to see you at the conferences and online. For anyone listening, if you want to reach out to me, you can go to the Twitter for Keypom, Keypom XYZ, or just me directly, Ben Couric. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And, and I'll see you around the Near Ecosystem. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained on this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.